the Union Association kind of amped up the the war in the middle of that season and started stealing the best players they could off the National League teams. The National League team saw that going on. They started stealing players back from the Union Association. There was, there was a full-blown war for players going on while all this was happening. And that's when the Wilmington Club steps into this Union Association. They really kind of walked into this crossfire of a, of a huge war between the existing associations, and, and they got shot. <laughs> Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey, gang, what's new? How's it going? My name is Tim Hanlon. Thank you very much for joining us once again uh, into our little uh, journey, our little excursion, our little uh, uh, expressway, shall we say, into the uh, deep, dark annals of uh, sports history. We call it Good Seats Still available, that curious little podcast journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. Uh, We welcome you to the proceedings. We thank you for finding us uh, and, of course, for rating and reviewing us uh, on all those places, uh, Apple Podcasts, etc., telling your friends and family and whatever uh, social media and stuff. We appreciate you uh, not only finding us, but uh, spreading the word uh, as uh, we reach the uh, tens of thousands now of audience members listening uh, to our little shows every week, and we uh, we uh, are just uh, just delighted uh, that you have joined us again, and that uh, many of your friends are starting to do so too. Um, uh, this week we are uh, are sticking into the uh, sticking with, shall we say, the uh, sport of baseball, and uh, we again go back uh, to the wayback machine uh, to uh, a very interesting story back uh, around uh, the uh, late nineteenth century, and we're talking eighteen eighty four. Uh, which uh, is the time when baseball was really starting to get uh, cooking on the professional level. Obviously, the National League having been founded in uh, 1876, um, uh, just a few years later, almost seven years later, you had actually three major leagues at the time, the American Association, which had started uh, uh, a few years after that. And for one interesting and uh, kind of head-scratching year, 1884, a third professional league was uh, popping up, and this was called the Union Association. It only lasted a year. Uh, some would argue it barely lasted a year, uh, and there's even debate within the baseball uh, history circles as to whether the Union Association was indeed uh, a long-lasting, uh, through the eyes of history, uh, professional league. I think uh, through this conversation today, with our guest, uh, John Springer, uh, I think you're probably going to say, yes, the Union Association was uh, was absolutely, uh, for its time, a major league, the third such uh, in the United States, a real testament to uh, the growing interest of the professionaliz- professionalization, shall we say, of the sport of baseball. And uh, the journey that uh, John and I uh, take in our conversation this week uh, is uh, about one of those interesting teams that was for a period of time in the Union Association, but uh, we'll get into when they actually came into it and actually left it. Hint, hint, they were not there at the start of the season, nor were they at uh, the uh, the tail end of the season either. And that, There was the team called the Wilmington Quick Steps. And um, yeah, Wilmington refers to Delaware, the, uh, the major city of Delaware, um, and uh, this is a story of a very uh, fascinating and successful minor league team at the time that 
got the call midseason, if you will, to actually jump up into the major leagues, in this case, the Union Association, uh, and uh, and fill in for a team that itself in the Union Association was uh, was faltering. Uh, the uh, the team in, in Philadelphia called the Keystones, uh, themselves the third best uh, professional baseball team in Philadelphia, uh, third of three, if you will. Uh, it's a fascinating story. It's really indicative of lots of different things going on at the time. And uh, John Springer has written a, a, a very fun and interesting and uh, uh, I, I think a, a story-laden uh, book uh, called Once Upon a Team, the Epic Rise and Historic Fall of Baseball's Wilmington Quick Steps. Uh, this is a story of Wilmington, Delaware as a city. Uh, it's a uh, desire to uh, or its aspiration to become a professional uh, uh, sports uh, uh, city uh, at the time in the late 1800s. Uh, it is a story of the third professional league at the time, only lasting a year, uh, that was uh, uh, on the uh, on the rise and uh, and helping uh, players uh, perhaps flex their muscles a bit and make some more money, uh, given uh, an increasing uh, clampdown by owners to perhaps restrict their uh, their trade, if you will, and a theme we've heard many, many times before. Uh, it is the story of a team, uh, the Quick Steps, that uh, dominated their uh, their minor league at the time and uh, got stars in their eyes, shall we say, uh, looking to financially better themselves, perhaps the city as well, and, and join the ranks of the major leagues. But of course, as we're going to find out, finding it a little harder than they, than they imagined. Um, all of those things uh, just make for a very, very compelling story, an interesting story. And again, uh, if you're not sort of a, an old-time baseball historian, doesn't matter because some of these stories are, are uh, rich uh, and very interesting and actually very thematic uh, to a lot of the sort of uh, bigger topics that we've uh, discussed and will continue to discuss on this little show uh, in our various exploits, uh, not just in baseball, but uh, all sports. Um, but again, this is our conversation with J John Springer. Uh, the author of Once Upon a Team, The uh, Epic Rise and Historic Fall of Baseball's Wilmington Quick Steps. That's our conversation coming up in a couple of seconds. It's fun. Stick around. You're going to enjoy it. Uh, let's see. Before we get there, I want to say hello and welcome uh, to a new sponsor. Uh, it is OldSchoolShirts.com. OldSchoolShirts.com. Uh, and uh, it is uh, a, an amazing place. Uh, they're based in uh Cincinnati, Ohio, and our friend P.F. Wilson reached out a couple of weeks ago, uh, having listened to a couple of episodes, and uh, he and uh, the team there are, uh, are really uh, adept at some very cool uh, sports logo uh, wear uh, from all kinds of leagues and teams and uh, and other things in and around uh, sports. Uh, you're you're going to find some very original designs. I mean, look, I was looking... Uh, just a few minutes ago at some of the uh, the very cool things. I mean, all kinds of old teams and leagues and cities. I mean, if you're a Chicago uh, Horizons fan, anybody remember the Chicago Horizons of the Major Indoor Soccer League, a one-year wonder? Uh, there's a shirt there for you too. If you're from, uh, if you're from, uh, let's say you're from Houston and you want that uh, Houston uh, Colt 45s logo shirt, it's there for you. Or perhaps the Houston Arrows of the uh, of the old World Hockey Association. You're going to find that there too. There's all kinds of fun stuff and uh, to be found at OldSchoolShirts.com. And of course, if you use the promo code, guess what that is? Good Seats, you will get a 10% discount from all your purchases. Again, it's OldSchoolShirts.com, our friends in Cincinnati. Uh, give them a try. You're going to really love this site. 
Uh, and there's some just great stuff, some great shirts, high quality stuff, and uh, great logos and uh, and memories to be had. Oldschoolshirts.com, promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off your purchases. And we thank P.F. Wilson and his friends at uh, at the site uh, for uh, reaching out and giving us a giving us a try. And we're we're tickled pink uh, to have them as a sponsor, and we welcome them to the fold. Oldschoolshirts.com. Thank you. Uh, and also, we also want to remind you that uh, audibletrial.com slash goodseats, that's the place to go to get some good quality sampling, if you will, of audio uh, books uh, and audiobook for sure, because you're going to get one free audiobook for trying uh, the service when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. You're going to get one month of the service for free. You're going to get a free audiobook download. You can cancel at any time. And that free audiobook download is yours to keep, even if you do, even if you do cancel. Uh, as long as you have that device, that book stays with you, and you can uh, listen to it as long as you need or as often as you want. Um, and again, that's our, our little uh, our little gift to you for giving it a try. That's audibletrial.com/slash/goodseats. Give that a try. We appreciate that. Uh, and again, it's yours to keep, so why not give it a shot? Audibletrial.com/slash/goodseats. And of course, we thank our friends at Audible for their continued sponsorship of our little show as well. All right, that's it. Let's get that out of the way. We've done that. Uh, let's uh, wipe the dust off of our uh, our feet and let us uh, slide safely into uh, into first or maybe second base uh, and get into our conversation uh, about the Wilmington Quick Steps, a very interesting story in the old Union Association. And here's my chat with author John Springer right now. Maybe you could start uh, with uh, regaling our audience a little bit about your your general background. Are you a writer by trade? And, and maybe you can also skate into your perhaps uh, affliction of being a Mets fan, and we can skate <laughs> we can skate into the topic at hand uh, from that. Yeah, sure thing. Yeah, uh, Tim, I'm I'm a a writer by trade. That's correct. Um, uh, you know, I came out of uh, school with a, with an English degree and and worked at a you know, small daily newspaper in Maryland, uh, doing sports writing, uh, as my career got to a start, uh, I kind of morphed, uh, over the years, you know, sometimes by necessity, sometimes, uh, you know, forced into it, but, uh, I moved on to a, a kind of a small freelance publisher in Wilmington, Delaware, uh, which is where this whole quick steps thing started out. And, uh, since, uh, the last, uh, uh, 20 years or a little bit more, I've been in New York, uh, as a business writer. Um, I, I write about the retail food business for a living. So, um, but you know, journalism, uh, uh, all the way through and, and, um, I was always a, a sports guy. I, I kind of decided early on that, you know, the sports writing field wasn't necessarily, uh, the best place to make a living. And I kind of supplemented my interest in writing about sports by kind of doing it for free or for fun or, or whatever. Um, uh, you know, I grew up in New York. I'm a, I'm a, a big Mets fan, kind of born into a big Mets fan family. Um, and in the late nineties, I began a kind of a goofy project where I, I decided, or I thought I knew what the uniform number of everyone who ever played for the Mets was. And I, uh, in a sort of the process of trying to figure that out, this was before this information was widely out there or in some cases even known. Um, I, I, uh, 
you know, kind of assembled uh, a list that accounted for everybody's uniform number, the dates that they wore them, and then wrote a history of the team that proceeded not chronologically by year, but by number. Uh, the idea that I would write, you know, start with chapter one and write about Mookie Wilson and the guys who wore number one for the Mets, uh, number two and Bobby Valentine, and so on up to Turk Wendell at 99. Uh, so that was a way I kind of supplemented the way, you know, my, my regular, you know, day job with these projects that I kind of focused on baseball and sports. Um, you know, the Quick Steps book that I did um, related to a magazine article I did many years ago and sort of uh, it stretched back to the time uh, I lived for about four years in, in downtown Wilmington uh, at the time they were sort of establishing the Wilmington Blue Rocks minor league team. Uh, you probably know this, but the Blue Rocks that were established in 1993 were a sort of a continuation of a Blue Rocks team that went bankrupt in the mid-50s, I believe. Um, anyway, uh, finding about the Wilmington Quick Steps, I kind of went back and, and it sort of uh, kind of took that took that information, you know, the, the emotional meaning of a team in a city and so forth, and kind of put that into, into the book called Once Upon a Team. Well, uh, let's talk about Wilmington for a second, right? Uh, having lived there myself, actually, for uh, almost two years uh, back in the day, uh, working in uh, marketing and advertising for what then was a, a giant credit card uh, company called MBNA America. Uh, oh, sure, everybody worked for MBNA. Well, I was in Wilmington as well. It's you know, like that. It was sort of the it was the uh, the the modern day Dupont uh, in terms of its uh, scale and uh, influence, yep. I guess, in, into the region, but. Uh, around 93, I remember very vividly the uh, Blue Rock coming back to town. But I also got a sense of, of Wilmington. Is, it's a, And I grew up in northern New Jersey, the New York City metropolitan area, right? And, you know, even even growing up on the East Coast and knowing certainly the Boston, the D.C. corridor with New York, obviously very much in between and the great state of New Jersey uh, along the way, uh, even I wouldn't uh, necessarily know a whole lot or didn't know a whole lot about Wilmington. Maybe you can maybe give a little bit of a background about sort of the I don't know. It's it's a uh, it's a uh, inferiority complex, perhaps along the, the eastern seaboard. I mean, I- yeah. Well, the city. I mean, the city itself was was you know smaller and a little bit younger than than Philadelphia, which is only about twenty uh, you know twenty twenty five minutes uh, to the north along the water. Um, and and um, you know it's it's almost exactly midway between Baltimore and Philadelphia, almost exactly midway between New York and Washington. So it was in this path of these great big East Coast cities, but never sort of became a great city itself. And, and um, you know, among the, uh, the things I learned about while researching this book about the Quick Steps was that, you know, at, at one time, the 19th century, uh, you know, it, a big, you know, uh, industrial revolution going on. These guys, uh, Wilmington had big league aspirations as a city. Uh, they were among the leading cities that exported uh, manufactured rail cars to, you know, cities all over the place. They, they were able to uh, build not only rail cars themselves, but the parts they assembled there. Um, so they were big in transportation and shipbuilding. Uh, you had the DuPonts just north of the city on the Brandywine River, you know, doing dynamite and kind of moving on from there to become a major chemical power. Um, and some of those things uh, were were really bringing a lot of growth to the city of Wilmington at the time that I wrote about the team, 1884 season in particular. Um, 
you know, what happened, a lot of those businesses, you know, in the early part of the 20th century got bought out by larger uh, groups. Um, I'm going to forget the names here off the top of my head, uh, sort of who bought the big rail car company called Har- Harlan and Hollingsworth, which employed thousands of people. Um, uh, and, and, you know, these, these, you know, manufacturing concerns kind of fell into other people's uh, control. It was a little bit less sort of relied on on the city um, to kind of provide the labor and sort of the, you know, the things that were associated with the things they built. For example, the, you know, the train cars they would build in Wilmington, they would build everything from the, the car itself, like I said, the parts, like the wheels. And then there were, you know, a community of artists, you know, employed within the city who, who stitched the, the furniture, you know, the Morocco factories that made the covering on the seats, the, uh, the, the painters and the designers and the, you know, all that stuff was, was supported by this, these big industries, by companies that were owned in, in Delaware. And again, uh, over the years, uh, they got bought out by larger rivals in bigger cities, Chicago, um, uh, you know, some of the big Midwest steel cities kind of took away a lot of, uh, a lot of the, the control of the industries that Wilmington was playing in. And of course they reinvented themselves over the years. DuPont obviously became a huge thing. Uh, and then by the time the 1990s came around, you know, the, the banking industry and the corporate, uh, offices was, you know, a major economic power for them. But, um, at the time, I guess what you'd say is that, you know, it's failure to, to kind of, uh, you know, become the major manufacturing power that it really wanted to be was sort of at the heart of Wilmington kind of staying small the way they were. And, um, uh, you know, I think to a certain degree that sort of reflected in the, in its struggle to support baseball teams over the years, you know, they've, they've had any number of, uh, of attempts, um, you know, many of which I got into in my book that, you know, would ultimately fail either because of lack of support from fans, lack of, uh, investment support from the owners or a combination of them. Um, and yeah, so, um, you can see, you know, some of the, uh, some of the results of, of, of that kind of disinvestment in Wilmington that had come, over the years kind of playing itself out, you know, is even today, um, you know, eventually, you know, general motors took away their plants, you know, that those kinds of things. And then as a result, you've got crime and, 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 you know, dwindling population in the city. And those are the things that, that they struggle with. Well, now that the uh, Wilmington Chamber of Commerce will completely disinvite uh, either of us uh, into the city, why, why don't we dial it's a wonderful city with a lot of great people? It is. It is. <laughs> it's, it's quite charming, actually, and uh, especially as you, yep. you know, yep. some of the suburban areas a little further north, and, and some of the it, it's it's very underestimated yeah. for sure. And it's right on the train. Uh, I mean, I lived at I lived at Thirteenth and Tattnall, right downtown, and I, it was a great place to live. I walked to work. Uh, yeah, there was a plenty of of uh, a nice kind of old school neighborhood that would remind you of something, you know, much nicer or more desirable in a, in a bigger city like Philadelphia. But it was a, it was a great place to live. Uh, a lot of, like I said, a, a lot of great people and, and always sort of a, a, I want to say a, uh, an aspiration to be better than it was, whether or not they were always successful at sort of being that way. And I think that's fair. And then maybe we could sort of juxtapose that with sort of uh, 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 the 
the era of sort of 1883, 1884, when this story sort of gets underway, right? So the aspiration yep. not limited to uh, industry or or status and culture, but also professional or what was then a burgeoning or beginning, if you will, early stages, professional uh, sports kind of environment. And obviously, at that time of of uh, uh, that in that generation, baseball was uh, supreme uh, in the United States as the uh, the sport of record. Um, maybe a little bit of background as to uh, this team known as the Quick Steps, which really didn't start as a major league team. It actually started kind of at the height of uh, of some very successful times in the minor leagues. Yeah, yeah, and 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 the the Quick Steps as a thing really began. Uh, back in the 1870s or maybe even the 1860s as a, as a, you know, local club team. And, and, uh, at that time, you know, uh, teams, there were any number of, of clubs that would represent neighborhoods or areas or, or various social clubs that would kind of play among themselves. Uh, and there were a number of teams kind of over the years in those kind of proto baseball days where, uh, you know, one amateur team or another would kind of be the, the, you know, champion of the of the uh, state or what have you. The Quick Steps gained renown uh, in the 1870s for being one of the amateur teams that would travel. They they uh, would support themselves with you know eat receipts and and have banquets and you know benefit events like that, and then they take this money and tour. So they would, uh, you know, challenge teams, you know, regionally and, and, and further out. Uh, and they had um, a couple of great seasons in the 1870s. Uh, they, for a while, they were, they were going around, uh, you know, the Eastern seaboard declaring themselves the champion amateur nine of the United States, which was a, a matter of debate in some cities. Um, but uh, they got kind of notoriety for that. Uh, you know, the quick steps I'm, I wrote about by the 1883, they still kind of maintain that name, although the team had gone, quote unquote, gone pro, um, you know, stopped any, um, uh, you know, illusion that they were, they were a truly amateur team at that time. And, and, you know, were competing in leagues with fixed schedules and those kinds of things, which didn't really exist, at least for the teams of, of the city in the 1860s or 70s. So they they were they were though up to challenging some of their uh, uh, newly professional uh, brethren, yeah. shall we say, in other leagues, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, the I, I don't have a great sense of, of sort of how pervasive leagues really were until you know the National League uh, sort of demonstrated that that a league with a fixed schedule and and a, and a set membership and a uh, you know, each team plays the other team, you know, the same number of times and sort of rules like that uh, sort of, uh, you know, demonstrated that that was a way to, uh, you know, sort of run a season, you know, as you probably know before then, the, the National Association of Baseball Clubs, um, you know, tried a professional league. But again, there was no schedule to it. It was a little bit more haphazard, um, you know, and there was this idea one of the interesting things I found out, especially in this, in this amateur era I'm talking about, um, that a championship in baseball was like a championship in boxing, where, you know, a team beats another team, usually in a series of, you know, best out of three, 
And then that team is the champion until it's dethroned by another team that can beat them two games out of three. So and that was sort of the origin of the quick steps declaring themselves amateur champions of the United States. Um, the problem with that, of course, was that, uh, you know, as in boxing or, you know, wrestling on TV, you know, you, the bad guy can beat the champion, but if it's not a championship match, it doesn't count. Right. So uh, that was a determination of the, uh, of the loser in these series quite often. So there, you could have multiple teams declaring themselves champions and so forth. So, uh, you know, the, the organized leagues that Wilmington clubs played in, um, uh, you know, I, I kind of traced it really just one year back, 1883, uh, when they played in the interstate league, which was a, a, a group that had pretty much the same, group of of clubs that would play in 1884 uh plus or minus a few so interesting so they're by 1883 they're playing in this thing called the interstate league which essentially is one of the which is the one of the sort of uh, uh supreme i guess minor leagues i think it's also interesting quick asterisk though is that you know i think it's it's important to remember you know that this is still i mean 1883 1884 right maybe if you will depending on where you draw the line of, of its origins, right, is only six or seven years into what could arguably be called the professionalization of the sport, right? I mean, there's, there's there was even yeah. debate, you know, as to whether how noble a pursuit uh, professionalism in, in the sport of baseball was at that time, right? I mean, it's still, yeah. still yeah. very much in its early teething stages, this professional thing. That's true. Although, you know, I mean, one of the, one of the interesting things that happened in 1883, is the year that sort of demonstrates that the professionals is a, is a boon for its owners and uh, can be for the cities that they play in. Uh, and, and that kind of, kind of ignites this explosion of baseball in 1884 that winds up sort of catching, uh, kind of scooping up the, the quick steps in the, in its uh, wake here. Uh, there was a, the Philadelphia athletics. I, I, I am always going to mess this up. because I always forget the actual figure. Um, but the Philadelphia Athletics of 1883, which played in the American Association, uh, reported some, you know, ridiculous uh, profit for that year. And I, uh, I, I might have to look up the actual profits that they said that they made that year. But, um, but yeah, it was a boon. You know, I mean, the, the, way, the, the, the way it seems to have worked is that, you know, the, the National Association clubs, which were sort of, it was sort of a league run by the players for the players. And the, the big advance of the National League was William Hulbert's, uh, you know, idea that, that the league really ought to be a cartel run by and for the benefit of the owners. And, and that was the big difference between, um, um, you know, the, the various leagues. And, and um, uh, you know, by 1883, 1884, it was clear that that was the place to be if you were you know, sort of speculating in this idea of making a business of it or making a, uh, you know, make, you know, making your name as a team owner or making your name as a team player. Um, you know, there were still very good amateur teams out there, teams that didn't play in leagues, but it really seemed like the leagues were the future at that point. So, all right. So before we get into sort of the, the, a little bit more of the genesis of the keystones, especially around this time, maybe it's important because it sounds to me that this is also uh, maybe backhandedly a story just as much about as you're hinting at uh, the professional uh, sport, if you will, now of baseball uh, with two and arguably now going into 1884, three 
uh, attempts at professional leagues. So maybe a little bit of uh, background as to the leagues that were out there and what this thing yeah. called the Union Association was all about, uh, sort of the newbie on Sure. Sure. Yeah. I, 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 you know, reel me in if I get too far into the, into no, the arcane, of, this, you know this, what I mean? This is part of the but, tableau that I think I, I, this is a puzzle to me and I think it's really cool to yeah. into it. So, so uh, National League established 1876. Great. Uh, uh, more or less uh, success from the start. Uh, as I, as I mentioned, it was kind of run for the benefit of the club. They tried to do things like limit the, the uh, membership in the organization to cities with 75,000, you know, uh, population and above. They gave clubs the ability to vote down, um, uh, you know, other guys who kind of encroached in their territories, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so that established this template for uh baseball as a sport that could be played within the confines of the league and teams that would play one another on a set schedule. Uh, 1882, the American association is born. Uh, that's known as, uh, you probably know the, the beer and whiskey league and the American association was, was similar to the national league in most respects. Uh, you know, one of the big differences was, uh, that they played games on Sundays and sold liquor in parks, which was a, um, a uh, you know, sort of a concession that was granted to um, the owner of the team in St. Louis that uh, realized that, you know, he got into baseball team ownership because he was a brewer who realized that, that sales at his tavern went, you know, at a, you know crazy when the baseball game fled out. Um, and so those leagues kind of brokered an uneasy peace over the first couple of years of their existence. Um, and, um, uh, you know, they had teams in the same cities in, in, in a lot of cases. Um, 1883, like I said, you know, 1883, both leagues, both the American Association and the National League had scintillating pennant races. The Philadelphia Athletics made a boatload of money. Uh, and interest in the game was really, really high. Um, that, that said, right, there is a millionaire in St. Louis named Henry V. Lucas, who himself wanted to become a National League baseball team owner for the reasons I just said. Um, Lucas uh, petitioned to get into the National League, but, you know, the league sort of cartel-like rules, um, uh, you know, shut him out, essentially. And so what Lucas said was, well, I don't have to, you know, I, I want to be, a, I want to be a team owner. What I'm going to do is have a team and I'll find seven other teams and I'll make an 18 league of my own. And he called it the union association. Uh, he put teams in, in most cases in the same cities that had American and uh, American association and national league teams. And then in a, in a sort of an attempt to, differentiate his league and attract players. He said that he was going to come at contracts a little more friendly than the existing associations did. That was a reference to the reserve clause, uh, which as you probably know, became an issue of, of uh, debate in baseball for about a hundred more years, but it was really the first uh, war of the reserve clause. So, so Lucas said, uh, there's going to be no reserve clause in the, in the uh, union association. Therefore, I should get a lot of 
national and American Association players because they're going to have more control of their careers, perhaps make more money, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Lucas sold, uh, sorry, signed a, any number of players over that 1883-84 offseason that were from the National League and American Association. Not all of them stayed with Lucas, and then, uh, you know, which was which was one issue, um, and and that sort of started this uh, battle between the Union Association and the existing association. Um, and they took them very seriously. Uh, the, the American Association expanded by four teams that season just to keep interest down in the Union Association challengers. Uh, you know, it, uh, I, I liken it to, you know, when, when a, a hot new microbrew comes into a bar, you know, Budweiser will put out a fake product that, that resembles it in order to, like, maintain that tap handle, you know. So this is what these guys were doing. Um, and uh, so the Union Association started, uh, you know, its play. Lucas's team was was stacked with former uh, National League and American Association players. Most of the other teams were, you know, either independent teams uh, or, you know, more or less would be minor league teams, perhaps, uh, you know, in other associations. Uh, and, you know, that 18 league got off to uh, a, a goofy start. You know, Lucas's team marauded the league. I think they played something like 900 ball, uh, you know, obliterated any any pretense of a pennant race in the league. And, you know, for that reason and a number of others, you know, interest in that league was, was pretty low. And you had teams kind of just coming and going almost, right? Some of these uh, franchises kind of. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, they had. Yeah. Yeah. Lucas had eight, the, the, the Union Associate had eight, eight teams to start the season. Uh, he had trouble getting an eighth team. They added a team in Altoona, Pennsylvania at the last minute, which was, you know, an amateur or I guess I call them amateur. They're probably semi-pro club or, you know, a, a more or less a minor league club and said, why don't you join our circuit? You know, we can't find anybody else. Well, um, you know, uh, Altoona's on the way, you know, between Philadelphia and St. Louis, <laughs> you know, we'll find a place to stop there on the train, uh, whatever, you know, that team didn't belong in bigger cities. That team fell apart. Um, some of the other, uh, union association teams, uh, you know, was the loser in a three team battle in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Keystones of the Union Association were less popular than the Philadelphia Quakers of the National League, who were much less popular than the Philadelphia uh, Athletics of the American Association. Uh, you know, in Washington, you know, the two teams, the American Association team and the Union Association both struggled because neither of them were any good. <laughs> And so, yeah, there was at least, let's see, Phil, uh, Altoona dropped out uh, almost immediately. I think they lost, uh, I can't remember how many games they lost out of their first, or how long they actually lasted, uh, but it was only a matter of records, weeks. According to my records, they went 6-19 and 19 for a winning percentage of 240. Right. 240, and most of those losses came against um, uh, St. Louis, incidentally. Uh, so the, not only did Lucas stack the St. Louis Maroons with, you know, by far the best talent in that league, but uh, they set it up to play home and home series over the first 12 games. So you know, they were destroying these guys by, you know, scores of, you know, 10, 10, 12, 15 runs a game. Yeah. So they dropped out, pardon me, the, uh, 
Altoona team uh, dropped out almost immediately, uh, and they were replaced by the Kansas City team, uh, the team called the Kansas City Cowboys, who were also not any good, but uh, willing to willing to join the league as a replacement for uh, Altoona. Um, later in that season, the uh, Chicago team was drawing very poorly. Uh, they moved to Pittsburgh, and they drove very poorly there, and they eventually dropped out. Uh, and the Philadelphia Keystones, who I said, like I said, were, were by far the, the worst and, and least popular team in Philadelphia, dropped out. And that was the opportunity for the Wilmington Quick Steps to take their place. So, uh, and, and we'll use that as a segue, but bef- before we do that, um, let me ask this sort of general question is why, sure. why would Lucas essentially set up a league that at least foundationally was competing directly with one, if not two teams in major markets versus perhaps sprinkling uh, their clubs and maybe some lesser competitive markets, right? To be the third yeah. team in Philadelphia just seems like a losing battle from day one. Yeah. I, you know, I don't think Lucas was, was ultimately very sensible about uh, sort of where things went. The, the league was set up very quickly. You know, there was, it, uh, you know, discussion about where those teams would go. Uh, you know, uh, that's the, the Washington club, um, uh, you know, the Wilmington club, uh, a few others, you know, may have formed a separate minor league or whatever, but, uh, you know, Lucas was, was, he was kind of a, uh, a bold guy, you know, he made these tremendous pronouncements, you know, we're going to take on the, the, nationally we you know our cause is just we will beat them you know lucas was lucas was also uh a, a extremely rich man who could afford this kind of fanciful kind of stuff and i don't know if he necessarily understood you know the economic implications of kind of getting in bed with these teams that were you know not prepared to uh you know our owners who were not not prepared to support their team in a, in a manner similar to the way Lucas did his team, you know, uh, he built, for example, uh, this, this elaborate stadium in, in St. Louis where the, you know, the, the Maroons played their home games and that had, you know, uh, uh, amenities that didn't exist then, you know, like a clubhouse for the players and a billiard room and, you know, all these sort of things that, that were completely out of line with, uh, you know, the, the folks he were sort of in bed with. And, you know, in the final analysis, it was that Lucas wanted to demonstrate to the National League owners that he should be a National League uh, owner. And, and you know, to an extent, this whole union association thing was a big fiasco to just kind of prove that point for him. Well, he was also acting as the, uh, uh, I don't know, the commissioner, the president, uh, you know, he's owning a team, but also double dipping, yep. if you will, as sort of running or trying to keep this thing afloat and, and alive. And I guess yep. he's 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 the instrumental guy uh, that uh, uh, intervenes uh, when the Philadelphia Keystones start to founder uh, and looks for a replacement uh, in Wilmington. Maybe a little bit of who were the Keystones, where, where were they going, and, and how did this sort of uh, uh, reach out to their, uh, the city to the North in Wilmington, yep. sort of come up as an idea to be a, a replacement. 
Well, well, you know, the popular story is that Wilmington was induced by these, you know, sweetheart deal from Lucas. But, you know, what, what I found in my book, I think, is, is interesting in that, um, uh, you know, much of the talk, and I'm, I'm getting way ahead of the question you asked, <laughs> much of the talk uh, about Wilmington leading lead actually was between uh, the Wilmington Club and one of the other club, the Washington Nationals of the Union Association. And their interest wasn't necessarily in, uh, you know, Wilmington's health, but they didn't want to lose home dates against the Philadelphia club. So uh, let me wind back. Uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the Philadelphia team was, was bad. Um, they, they, you know, the Phillies weren't popular either, but they, they were drawing better than the, than the quick step, uh, pardon me, the Keystones. Uh, the Keystones had sliced their uh, admission price by half. There was only 25 cents to go to the games. Still didn't help. The team didn't win any games. That was their problem. I believe uh, Philadelphia played something like 300 ball for most of the year. Um, and uh, so, yeah, they they were on their knees for a while. Um, and uh, when they finally gave up the ghost, uh, there was talk that Wilmington – could replace them in the schedule. Um, and, and, uh, so Wilmington made that decision after several discussions with William Warren White, who was, uh, uh, in charge of the nationals team in the union association. Um, and, um, you know, Wilmington had their own reasons for making the move, um, for all their success, you know, they were not drawing well. Um, they had, you know, walloped the teams in their Eastern, their, uh, minor league. Wilmington was at the time they made the jump to the union association, their magic number was one, right? They would have clinched the division, uh, with one more win or one more loss from the team behind them. Uh, so, so and they, they were, were so playing, they were, they were tearing yeah. it up, if you will, in, in the, in the, uh, interstate league, right? So the, in the, East, essence, yeah, yeah, the interstate feeling, league, which was renamed the Eastern league, uh, in 1884. Yeah. The Wilmington was 51 and 12 at the time they made the move. Uh, so that's, that's better than 800 ball. Uh, you know, the fans had basically stopped coming out to the games because the, the results were a foregone conclusion. Um, the Eastern League was having the same problems that uh, the Union Association was having in that, uh, you know, there was a little bit, there was a competitive imbalance that, you know, deadened the interest in a pennant race. Uh, some of the teams just, just weren't, weren't uh, financially or, uh, you know, well-run, you know, operationally. Um, and, and we're up against one team that was, you know, uh, uh, run well operationally. That was the quick step. Um, they had dominated their, their league. There was, uh, you know, there was really very little drama in their games throughout the year. They had, um, you know, they had a terrific team. They had a very good manager, uh, and they were having a lot of success. So it sounds to me like it's a little combination of hubris and, um, flattery, uh, and, uh, Maybe and there was financial, yeah, financial opportunity, oh, there was, right? Yeah. Yes. Well, there was, there was plenty of financial opportunity. You know, uh, the, like they said, the Wilmington team was kind of operating in the red from the start of the year. And that's because, you know, they went out and kind of bought players. Um, uh, you know, they bought the best players out of the East, uh, out of the Interstate Association of 1883. They simply got a head start on everybody else. And 
you know, had assembled their team basically by, by November while the others were still figuring out who was going to, who was going to support them that year. Um, and, uh, but the, the story goes that the Wilmington owner, a man named John West said that, uh, William Warren white of the, of the union association had agreed that they would not only, well, they would pay the team's expenses for road trips if they made the trip and that they would get in some cases, I believe 50% of the gate receipts at the games that they played in. And from West's point of view, if that were true, that would kind of pull them out of their financial issues that they were facing and kind of get them through to the end of the year. So that was a, you know, the question is, is whether that was really ever offered. Um, Although it was widely reported at the time, you know, nobody ever disputed it until uh, long after the season. And, and, and Lucas said he had never heard of, uh, you know, the Wilmington team and, you know, uh, you know, denied making any of those offers. It's hard to say whether that was actually a thing or just something that John West told the Wilmington people because he was worried that, you know, the team that he was supporting was going to go bankrupt uh, in the middle of this great season they were having. But what is factually true, though, is that they were the Quick Steps uh, in exhibition uh, form, uh, playing and beating uh, the Nationals of Washington and the Baltimore Monumentals in the Union Association. So there was, I guess, on some level, yes. some familiarity and maybe even, uh, so we say, we say backward or backhanded uh, comfort in knowing that this is a team that conceivably could step in and, and be quality competition. Correct. And, and yeah, it, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that the quick steps were competitive with some teams, at least could be, you know, on, and, and not only that, that when they had these, these off day exhibitions, uh, you know, the, 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 the team would draw much better than they would again, these league games, which were no contest. Yeah, people weren't, weren't interested in seeing a, a baseball game where they knew who was going to win before it started, you know, especially given, you know, the gambler's interest in baseball at that time. So uh, what the quick steps did or, you know, and, and Wilmington's, you know, enviable geographic positioning between Baltimore, Philly, Washington, New York, you know, train loads of professional ball players out of three leagues would be passing through Wilmington every week. So when they had mutual off days, the Wilmington club would schedule these guys to come in for a game. They, they, they would draw much better um, and, and give the fans a show. And it, yeah, it definitely built a confidence that, that Wilmington was a team that could, could play with these guys, um, you know, when they could. They, uh, the, probably the most famous um, game that they played against uh, a team was when the New York Mets of the American Association stopped in Wilmington. Uh, the, the quick steps beat him five to four, uh, beat Tim Keefe, the hall of fame pitcher for, um, uh, the New York team. So yeah, it was definitely this idea, you know, they, I think, you know, selling it to the fans wasn't such a big deal. Um, but you know, whether the union association liked Wilmington so much that they would, they would pay for these guys to take a train out to Cincinnati and Kansas city you know, to, to just to have him play, that is in question. I think that was story was told by Wilmington. Is it true? You know, it's hard to say. It's hard to believe.
All right, time for me to catch my breath, get a cool, tasty beverage, and uh, remind you while we do so that uh, our friends at Audible uh, are here to uh, remind you that uh, you can get a free audiobook download uh, of your choice from over 180,000 titles. Uh, if you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats and uh, use that link, of course, to uh, try for yourself a free audiobook on us, uh, gratis, if you will. And you will love the idea of audiobooks. It's uh, it's an awesome way to kill time uh, and uh, occupy and stimulate your mind, uh, perhaps when your eyes are busy uh, doing uh, something else. And of course, there are plenty of uh, interesting books to be found, especially in the world of sports and sports history. And I think our audience might enjoy a few of these, of course, including uh, the seminal work by uh, baseball uh, legend Jim Bouton. It's called Ball Four. It is uh, not only written, but it's also narrated by him. You could use your free credit for that book. And of course, as you know, Ball Four uh, centers around the 1969 uh, one-year wonder that is the uh, Seattle, was the Seattle Pilots of Major League Baseball, but obviously the uh, the background for a whole lot of other observations about the sport of baseball. And it remains to this day, uh, perhaps uh, one of the most celebrated writings about the sport of baseball uh, in this country. Of course, you can also, if you're not a big baseball fan, you can go into the world of soccer uh, with uh, the autobiography called My Turn by Johan Cruyff, the uh, uh, late Johan Cruyff, uh, perhaps one of the world's best ever uh, soccer players. Uh, he of Dutch heritage, of course, uh, plenty of uh, great legendary years at club play as well as national team play uh, for the Dutch team, as well as for our audience, maybe a little bit of interest, uh, his journeys in the North American Soccer League in the late 70s and early 80s with the uh, Washington Diplomats uh, and the uh, Los Angeles Aztecs. And of course, if you're into football, uh, there's probably no better book, especially if you find yourself uh, really interested in the sort of deep and rich history of the NFL, with uh, the book called NFL Football, A History of America's New National Pastime. It is written by Richard Crapeau and narrated by Marlon May. That, too, uh, is uh, an audiobook that you could choose from over, like I said, uh, 180,000 titles. Uh, there's got to be something in there that's going to be of interest to you. And by all means, give it a try. And we appreciate you doing so at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you're going to get your free uh, audiobook download. You can cancel it any time. And again, even if you cancel it, you can keep that book as long as your device exists. So again, we appreciate it. Give it a try. Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now back to our conversation. Well, okay, so come come um, August or so, right? The uh, the 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 jump is made, right? So uh, based on my little crack research here, that uh, the uh, the Keystones effectively folded on the seventh of August, eighteen eighty four, which you know not necessarily a surprise because there were a whole bunch of other Union Association teams, as you were hinting at before, that uh, had already stumbled and failed and sort of uh, gone. Uh, their own uh, respective ways out of the league by that time. But this is about yeah. when the quick steps uh, step up, shall we say, into, I guess, to fill in the gap. Um, and I guess, you know, it seems to me like, all right, well, uh, maybe the Union Association feels a little shaky, but it is arguably, a, a, a you know, at least on certain levels of perception, a third professional league. It's 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 part of the mm -hmm. times and, and professional baseball is growing uh, lots of interest. Uh, uh, you know, it seems like uh, I don't want to call it a no-brainer, right? Obviously, you mentioned some of the financial challenges that the the Wilmington Club had as well. But um, you know, I, 
from all accounts, it seems to me like, you know, why wouldn't you try to make this happen, given especially yeah. the tantalizing successes that you've had in the exhibition uh, oh, world? Oh, totally, yeah. Teams. I think on a baseball, on a, on, a, on a baseball, you know, the baseball, thing, the Wilmington Club was, was good enough to play in the Union Association from day one. Um, so that made a lot of sense. Um, you know, the, the Union Association as a thing by the time, you know, the Wilmington Club came along, was wobbly in as much as, as I mentioned before, there was really no pennant race to be had. Uh, really, for for the for the Wilmington fans, it was an idea. It was this idea of of you know getting better competition in there to draw more fans to the to the club. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, Wilmington. You know, I I don't argue that at all. Wilmington can and and did kind of play with the best teams in baseball that year. Would they beat them all the time? No. Would they have finished in first place if they played in the National League? No. They would have. They probably would have been near the end. But uh, you know, they 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 weren't as bad as as you know many of the many of the the Union Association clubs were. Um, you know, the other thing that that we really haven't gotten into yet. Uh, that was you know, sort of a reason against joining the union association was uh, that, you know, there was this massive player war going on between them and the national and American associations at that time. So um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the, this reserve clause issue that the union association was backing, uh, you know, or, or back that, that became, um, you know, something that the existing leagues really worried about. Uh, the Union Association felt that uh, they, they passed this thing called the Day Resolution. The, the existing groups that would ban a player for life if they, uh, you know, if they jumped the contract and went to a, you know, a non-league uh, team, and that scared a lot of the players away. The Union Association kind of amped up the the war in the middle of that season and started stealing the best players they could off the National League teams. The National League team saw that going on. They started stealing players back from the Union Association. There was, there was a full-blown war for players going on while all this was happening. And that's when the Wilmington Club steps into this Union Association. They really kind of walked into this crossfire of a, of a huge war between the existing associations, and, and they got shot. <laughs> well, it sounds like uh, it was – not a bad time to be a player because you've got now three entities bidding for services. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, every time that that happens in baseball history, you've seen it, right. Salaries go up, you know, the, the, you know, the threat of the continental league in 1960 or the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, what do you call it? The players, players, the Brotherhood league in 1890, yeah. right. Federal league, right. It, you know, every time that accompanies this insane, uh, you know, jump in salaries and, and usually from, you know, what you would consider, you know, in retrospect to be like paltry wages to better wages. Right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, even over the course of the 84 season, the quick steps had players whose salaries more than doubled, um, during the course of that year. Well, all right, let's talk about some of the players, right. And, and, the, and the sort of the characters, because, yeah. you know, before we sort of get into their, their downfall. And I think to, to put this in, in perspective, for our audience, right, uh, the, uh, the the team is basically stepping up to the Union Association in, well, the first or second week of August of 1884. They only lasted in the Union Association until the third week of September of 84, right? So, um, yeah. but maybe before we get to why they the, the quick demise, um, 
How about some of the players that kind of got them to this spot in the first place? Because obviously they were doing quite yep. well uh, yeah. in the Eastern League before they uh, they made the jump, right? And uh, obviously yeah. for a good reason. That's why they were invited in some respect. Absolutely. Uh, it started with the manager. His name was Joe Simmons. Uh, he was kind of a, a, a forgotten figure in the you know early baseball uh, career. But Joe Simmons was named the manager. Uh, he had managed the Trenton team in the interstate league in 1883, he was hired by Willington to be their manager, basically, you know, the day after the 1883 season started, uh, you know, Simmons was a, 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 a pro ball player whose career went back to, you know, cricket in the New York area, played with all these legendary teams, the unions of Morsania and the, uh, you know, the Chicago white stockings of 1870. And, you know, all these, these, kind of legendary teams in the past. He's an old guy, uh, older guy, 38 years old, I guess at the time, um, knew the talent very well. You know, you got to understand this was, this was before you could look up a player's stats on your phone, you know, or, uh, you know, consult the scouting bureau for a report on these guys. So uh, there was no experience really for the, for the, uh, no, no, no substitute for the experience that a guy like Simmons had. Uh, he knew the league very well, knew the players very well, and went out and basically signed an all-star team of uh, interstate association ball players uh, that offseason. The best of those was a a young infielder from the Harrisburg team named Tommy Burns, uh, popularly known as Oyster Burns. Uh, Burns was a, a... well, at that time, he played shortstop, he pitched, he did a little bit of outfield. He's mostly a shortstop and outfielder. Uh, tremendously strong, uh, tough, uh, violently tempered uh, guy. Um, uh, played for, you know, they, they say played for all he was worth. He ran hard. Uh, you, you, you'll, you'll see some pictures if you look them up online of Oyster Burns. There's one uh, from the 1889 uh, Brooklyn team that he winds up with. And he's sitting cross-armed in, in the front of a team portrait. And you look at his forearms, and they are—they're as big as my thighs, right? They were like, you know, he was like Brian Downing, Popeye. You know, this is a hundred years before stories. Strong, strong guy, uh, real power hitter in the, uh, you know, uh, when when there wasn't a whole lot of power hitters in, in baseball. Uh, How did he get the name? So was, yeah. Pardon? Oyster. It was given to him late in his career, and and I think it was a name that we he was known more for by historians necessarily than he was during a playing career. Although uh, the reason for that was that there were two players named Tommy Burns who played at the same time. One was a, uh, a uh, infielder with the Chicago team in the National League. So they were, uh, there were two Tommy Burns. I think to distinguish them, they called them Oyster Burns. Yeah, they called them Oyster Burns. I'm pretty sure because of his association with the Baltimore Orioles, who he played with for a couple of years following uh, Wilmington, who was Baltimore famous for its oysters. And, uh, that was his name. I, I, I feel like, you know, he was a, he was a hard shelled and salty player. It's kind of a great, <laughs> a great nickname for him in retrospect. I don't know if that's the reason why, but, uh, uh, he was, he was the best player in the, in the Eastern league by a long shot. And, and he belonged in the major leagues, even at, uh, you know, though he was 19 years old and had a little, some growing up to do as far as his sort of behavior on the field went. Um, uh, Burns, you know, they had two other, uh, excellent hitters on that team. One was Dennis Casey, who was an outfielder 
I think he hit 370 in Eastern League play that year. Singles hitter, but uh, but a good singles hitter. Uh, and they had a uh, a player named Tom Lynch, uh, another tough Irishman, uh, uh, a pretty good left-handed hitter, um, and had some power. So they had an offense, you know, at in a, in a, in a time when, you know, I mean, they call it the dead ball era. This was not a home run hit. You know, home runs weren't the thing then necessarily. The Wilmington team hit home runs. You know, they they uh, they were kind of an offensive-minded team at certain positions. And then, uh, uh, you know, their, their real secret ingredient was the pitcher. Uh, uh, his name was Edward Nolan. People remember him as the only Nolan. And Nolan was a real special case uh, in the Eastern League because he had actually had several years of major league experience or, or uh, playing with the best pros in the, in the game. But uh, Nolan had a notorious history of drinking and, and discipline problems and gambling, um, well, gambling suspicions. They never, they never pinned anything on him, but they believed he threw games. Um, and he had been suspended by baseball and blacklisted at least three times by the time uh, Wilmington reached out to him just before the season began. So uh, – uh, Nolan was, was basically considered unemployable and Simmons to his credit knew, uh, Nolan because they had played together many years before on a team in, uh, Indianapolis, I believe. And, uh, Nolan, uh, kind of rehabbed his image and his, his drinking problems, um, in Wilmington that year. And then he was a magnificent pitcher who was, good enough to beat these teams. Now, you know, Wilmington doesn't stand a chance against the New York Mets if, if Nolan isn't pitching. So, two, you know, uh, they also had a, a couple of other guys with, with decent major league careers ahead of them. One was the left-handed pitcher, Dan Casey, who I mentioned his brother, Dennis, who was an outfielder. Uh, Dan was very young at that time, but he had a long, a decent career, seven, eight years ahead of him with the Phillies. Uh, Charlie Bastion uh, was the second baseman, uh, he was never a great hitter in the major leagues, but uh, is considered by a lot of historians as probably the best defensive middle infielder of the uh, of the era that he played in. So uh, again, you know Simmons had these uh, 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 you know picked his talent pretty well, and they all performed pretty well. He kept the team together kind of harmoniously, and and they were just uh, uh, they were just a powerhouse. Is there any truth to the rumor? And I, this is, a, 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 again, another piece of crack research. So, you know, uh, sure. take it for what it's worth, because who knows where it's coming from. Dennis Casey, is he the proverbial Casey at the bat? Uh, from <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, it was actually uh, Dan Casey, uh, his younger brother, the pitcher, who uh, said that he was the mighty Casey. Of course, that was not true. And I think, you know, Casey sort of knew it was not true, but he kind of played up the rumor anyway. It got reported, I don't know exactly when, the 20s maybe, or the uh, 1920s. Dan Casey lived very long um, and, uh, into, into his 80s. And, um, uh, you know, sort of playing along with this myth, uh, you know, when the Baseball Hall of Fame opened, and, you know, they're celebrating this, this other myth, right? You know, that Abner Doubleday invented baseball in Cooperstown, New York. They said, hey, well, let's bring out the original Casey from the, from the poem. But 
there's no way that that, <laughs> that poem was about Dan Casey. He just said so. And, and, you know, people love a myth and they bought it up. They ate it up. Dan Casey, when he, when he was, you know, honored there at the, at the hall of fame opening, he was given a lifetime pass. He could go to any baseball game he wanted to. And, uh, it's a great story. Um, but you know, like, like many great stories, <laughs> there's no truth to it at all. What there is truth, though, too, though, is that a whole lot of the players uh, abandoned ship pretty quickly. Uh, what's yeah, with yeah. that, right? I mean, I, I could see yeah. maybe the tantalizing dollars of the Union Association, but arguably the team is now in the Union Association. Um, Correct. So why would they leave, given the chance to be in the quote-unquote pros now? Yeah, well, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there was this major player war going on between the between the associations at that time. Um, and kind of crossing over to enemy lines made, you know, the players, especially those with major league aspirations, uh, sort of vulnerable. And they didn't want to be associated necessarily with this rebel league that was, you know, bringing war on the, on the ball players. Uh, you know, Burns, like I said earlier, was a good enough player to play in the major leagues that year. He, he, he jumped after one game, he was offered, um, the opportunity to go over to the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, and in, in, you know, whatever it was, the remaining seven weeks of the American association season, he ended up finishing second in the league in home runs. So, uh, and, and his salary, uh, uh, more than doubled, I guess, as a result of, of, uh, making that jump. So Burns went, Dennis Casey went along with him. Um, uh, the story is, is actually that Baltimore asked, uh, Tom Lynch to come with, uh, Burns, but Lynch, for whatever reason, uh, didn't want to go to the Orioles. And so they took Dennis Casey instead. When Dennis Casey left, the ball players were, were resentful of Dennis Casey getting this opportunity that the rest of them didn't, because I don't think they liked Dennis Casey all that much. Uh, Dan Casey then kind of left the team in, in shame, basically, uh, after his brother left. So those three were off right away. The other problem was uh, that Nolan, uh, the pitcher, and his favorite catcher, Tony Cusick, were tempted at that time to join the Phillies in the National League. Uh, and there's, a, there's quite a, a bit of kind of story behind that. But the, the story is, is that uh, those guys went to, instead of reporting to Wilmington's first game in the Union Association, they went instead to a tryout with the Phillies in, uh, in Philadelphia. Uh, but Nolan never signed with Philly and he never signed <laughs> with the union association. He kind of was playing them off one another. And eventually, uh, he wouldn't join Philly. Um, Cusick wanted to join Philly, but couldn't because they didn't think he was worth anything without Nolan. So these guys kind of held out for a couple of days. Uh, Nolan was gone for almost, uh, I don't want to say he didn't rejoin the team until the 29th of August. So, and by then Wilmington had, had gone through this terrible stretch without their best pitcher, losing their best hitter, their second best hitter. You know, they were, in, they were in a shambles by the time, uh, Nolan came back. So, uh, you know, Nolan could have joined Philadelphia he was a he was a crafty kind of guy. He he was playing the leagues off one another and and doing his best to get a salary increase the best he could. Uh, 
which he eventually got from Wilmington and in uh, in the Union Association. Well, I think it's also important to kind of get a sense of, of how much money we're talking about, right? So, uh, again, I've been looking at the – I think this is an entry in uh, – uh, this might have been Wikipedia, so you got to take this with a grain of salt. But I, I you know, sure. and, and we all we all know that the the amount of what the dollars were like in in the late in the eighteen eighties are certainly very different today. But in terms of percentage, right? I, my understanding that uh, some of these players were basically making about you know one hundred one hundred fifty dollars a month in Wilmington, and you're talking about I I, I think uh, Oyster Burns looked at jumping to the uh, the Baltimore Monumentals for something like nine hundred dollars a month, right? Which is just a, a gigantic raise. I think Dennis Casey was looking at Baltimore for seven hundred a month. You know, not bad when you're making one fifty. Um, yeah, yeah. In the midst of I, you know, some time. of that is yeah, yeah. No, you're you're absolutely right. The the, the salary increases were were huge. I'm not sure whether that seven hundred nine hundred dollar uh, is a month or for the rest of the season, which was about two months. But either way, these sure. guys were doubling their salaries in the jump. So, yeah, it was. Uh, um, it was worth it to them. And, and again, with, in the case of Burns, he was just a good player. I mean, it was, you know, you couldn't, you know, if you can imagine present day, you know, you've got a, a, a triple A hitter, you know, who's hitting 400 and, and, you know, murdering the league, you, you know, the, the team's not going to cry when he's called up to the big leagues. you know, it's just going to happen. You know, there were, there was no stopping, Burns' career. It was the other guys, you know, that was sort of kind of caught up in the whole thing that were, uh, you know, they kind of tore the team apart. And like I said, it, Burns was also the team captain. He kept everybody in line. He was a he was a a, a, a demonstrative, uh, shrill voice, a uh, uh, little bit of a disciplinarian, so to speak. You know, t- team captains at that time were more or less like the managers that we think of today, right? They, they set the lineups, you know, it was their responsibility to argue with umpires, you know, those kinds of things. So, so Burns was really the soul of the, uh, uh, you know, the offense anyway of, of the quick step team. And, and, you know, Nolan was their best pitcher by a long shot. So without those two, you know, they were just, were not, they were not the same team, uh, you know, once they turned pro. So they got, they got worse. Uh, you know, the higher they got, the the worse the team got. Well, it would, it seems to me that not only do they not handle the, uh, the the opportunity or the ability to – they couldn't handle losing those quality players, number one. But it also seems to me that, you know, and maybe maybe this is in retrospect, right, they're, they're essentially jumping up into the union association when – it's clear that St. Louis has already run away with the, running away with the pennant uh, in this, yep. this crazy league, and you know it's, it's almost like they're 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 acting as filler, right? So I don't know. Yeah. You you put those two pieces together: the lack of star talent that's sort of dissipating elsewhere, and uh, like why even bother? Given that the whole season's already wrapped up, if you will. Um, yeah. You think that was, or there are other things that conspired to them not even making yeah, that the was- end of the Union Association season. Oh, well, yeah, there was economic problems. I mean, that, that was why they made the jump in the first place, right? They, I mean, among the other things that they knew that they could count on as a union association team was that Henry Lucas's St. Louis Maroons would come to Wilmington for a four-game series in a couple of weeks, right? So here, you know, then the team could say, hey, here are these great players. They're coming out to the city. Come on out to the ballpark. Come on, see them, you know, those kinds of things. I think two things took this, you know, the quick steps by surprise. One, they did not expect to be caught up in the player war the, the way they did. Um, there were uh, there were any number of 
uh, entreaties to kind of get their players over the course of the season that, that, you know, were not successful. Nolan was offered a contract by the Phillies it, much earlier in that season, didn't take it. Um, and, and, you know, again, with the, I think they were surprised that their, that their ball players didn't, you know, were, were picked off as suddenly uh, as they were. Um, and then, yeah, it was, it was an economic problem. They did not have, uh, the Quicksets didn't have enough money uh, left in their coffers to pay the opposing team their guarantee of the of the uh, gate receipts uh, at home, much less you know take a 16 game road trip to to Cincinnati, St. Louis, and Kansas City, which was on the schedule, uh, you know, ahead of them on the schedule. Um, and and again, they they had perpetuated this myth that the union association was going to pay for that, uh, whether that was true or not, you know, well, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is the union association didn't pay it and wouldn't pay it. And before they even got to that point, the quick steps had, had gone bankrupt. And they only won two of their 18 games. So must've been a very yeah. spiriting experience. Yeah. And they won their first. <laughs> and that was the game that, uh, yeah. Yeah, that was the game that uh, uh, Oyster Burns played in, and Dan, Dan and Dennis Casey. Dan Casey pitched. Dennis Casey was in the outfield. Uh, Oyster Burns was a shortstop. Uh, they didn't have Nolan. They didn't have Cusick, but they won that game. Um, you know, they were demoralized by the Burns departure. Um, you know, and they had a, I had a rough time kind of filling in the round. You know, teams only had 11 or 12 guys at any one time at that, at that time, right? They didn't need to employ 25, you know. So you miss one or two players, you'd have to kind of pull whoever was available. So, um, you know, in, in the middle of this season, it, uh, it, the week that they started playing union games, it was in Washington. It was 95 degrees out and in the middle of this, this you know, sickening heat wave, you know, they have to find who's ever available, you know, uh, to play first base or to play shortstop or to pitch because they don't have Nolan or Burns there. Um, you know, they, they, uh, you know, would, would, would employ these guys, um, uh, his name's escaping me at the moment who came in, pitched, disappeared with his reserve money afterwards, you know, his, his advanced salary afterwards. Um, and, you know, those are the kind of things that so they were kind of relying on. It. One account has Joe Simmons, 38 years old, playing third base in a game. Uh, and, and none of the baseball encyclopedias um, uh, reflect this. But uh, my, my research indicates that, that Simmons actually suited up and played third base in one of those games in Washington because they were so shorthanded. Um, the other problems, Wilmington was not used to traveling so much. You know, their their travel, their longest trip until now was to Richmond, um, and uh, basically from Washington, in order to make the Union schedule, they had to get from Washington to Boston. And they arrived; their train arrived too late in Boston. They hadn't they hadn't any experience <laughs> traveling to Boston before. They arrived too late to get charged with a forfeit. Um, again, they they you know kind of patched together a team. Some of these guys had drinking problems, um, discipline issues because they were ball players who were available in the middle of the season. One of them is a gentleman named John Cullen. Uh, Cullen was an outfielder and a catcher. Cullen got drunk after a game in Wilmington, came home to the to the 
uh, club hotel, walked into an empty elevator shaft, <laughs> fell 20 feet to the ground, suffered back injuries, couldn't play again for the rest of the year. It, you know, that kind of stuff happened. Um, there was a, a gruesome incident that happened while Wilmington was hosting the team from Cincinnati, uh, the Outlaw Reds, in which the umpire got struck by a, uh, a, a foul ball, shot off the bat, hit him in the mouth, fell to his back, almost died of suffocation. If there weren't for a, a, a doctor who was, happened to be at the game that day, uh, it would have been baseball's first on-field fatality. Uh, the newspaper said that, that people were you know, getting sick. The scene was so gruesome on the field. You know, those kinds of things hurt the attendance. The kids, the people didn't want to come back and see that kind of stuff. What was the, uh, what was the final straw um, in September that um, sort of where they gave up the ghost? Well, they gave up the ghost. I mean, I, I don't, I wish, I wish there was something that was, uh, you know, dramatic, but they didn't, I mean, the, the you know, the, the accounts I read would say they did not draw enough people to the game to pay Kansas City, who was visiting that day, uh, there's $75 guarantee. You know, the, the owners were out of money. The, the team, you know, gate wasn't generating enough to pay him $75. Um, so um, uh, Simmons pulled the, pulled the men off the field and disbanded then and there. You know, the other thing was, again, if West was lying the whole time about this this story that, that uh, Lucas was going to pay their pay their way to do their uh, uh, Western trip, which was coming up or whether, you know, Lucas said, yes, we will. He wasn't, he didn't intend to, he was already recruiting a team in, uh, I guess it was Milwaukee to take the quick steps place when that road trip began. And that's exactly what they did. So the quick steps knew that they were being replaced and they knew that, uh, you know, they didn't have drawn enough fans at the game. But they also knew that Burns wasn't coming back and, you know, everything else. So I think they just kind of gave it up then. So, I mean, what, what's the so what is the epitaph for all this? I mean, you've got, you know, uh, the city of Wilmington sort of gets its taste of, I guess, at least for the one year, the professionalism of what some would argue was a third professional league at the time. Obviously, they mm-hmm. had been quite successful in the minor leagues the year and a half prior, so to speak. Um, you know, obviously, it did. You know, they they weren't prepared for, uh, you know, a, a three league bidding war for players and all that kind of stuff. But was there any, based on your your research, is there any thought about somehow, uh, you know, taking another stab at it either in the union association, which I know at least a couple of clubs tried to sort of soldier on for a yeah. season, but it didn't, it didn't, didn't occur. You know, was there any thought that uh, Wilmington could at least somehow even at least get back at the minor leagues? Uh, it seems like there was, well, one. they did, uh, they did the following year under, under the same owner. He, he, uh, uh, Don West, uh, got some investors together, uh, and, and, uh, tried to get a team together. Although that team also drew poorly, was not as successful as the quick steps as a baseball uh, thing, uh, they, uh, drew very poorly and they relocated to Atlantic city halfway through the season. Um, that league, I don't believe that was the Eastern league. That was, might've been a different league, but it was, it was purely minor league at that time. You know, here's the other interesting thing that I didn't mention that you'll probably find pretty interesting was that, uh, during the season before this whole union association situation came up, um, 
there was a team in the Eastern League named the Richmond Virginians. And as you know, that they moved to the American Association. So they, had, they stepped up from the minor leagues to the major league earlier that season um, and took the place of the disbanded Washington team in the American Association. Uh, that team went bankrupt. The Washington team in the American Association was one of several teams that they added to that league in order to clamp down competition for the Union Association. That team was a failure. Richmond made the move to the American Association. Before they did that, though, they called Wilmington, or I don't know if they could have telephone. <laughs> they telegraphed Wilmington and proposed that the teams merge and go together into the into the American Association. And that would have been interesting because Richmond had uh, 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 three or four players who actually had a decent major league career ahead of them as hitters. Wilmington had the pitching. Wilmington had Burns. Wilmington had the superior manager and Joe Simmons. Uh, you know, had they been able to come to an agreement and, and throw a team up there in the American Association, that would have been interesting to see. Uh, as it went, the Richmond team did, did very poorly in the uh, American Association. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because the uh, Maroons, uh, who ran away with it uh, in the Union Association, actually made the jump uh, to the National League the next season for a couple of seasons. Correct. And I think Lucas and that was all... got his wish, but maybe didn't last all that long, from what I understand. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was all Lucas wanted in the first place. I, I, think, I think, you know, I, he talked a good game. Maybe he believed, you know, personally – in this idea that the, the that the uh, reserve clause was unjust uh, and everything else, but that that didn't stop him when he got the offer to get to the National League. He, he went to the National League, and he, you know he left his fellow owners in the Union Association, uh, primarily the Cincinnati uh, Outlaw Reds owners, completely in the lurch. Those guys were the Reds, uh, although they they uh, had no uh, ability to kind of reel in the St. Louis club, that club took this player war as seriously as anybody. They reeled in a bunch of National League players uh, over the course of that season and were making a real go of it. By the time the Union Association blew up, the Reds were probably the best team in the league, um, uh, but left them completely in the lurch. You know, these guys were completely screwed um, by by Lucas's decision, uh, uh, you know, to go to the National League. And yeah, his team only lasted a couple of years. Um, you know, they had problems. He, uh, one of the things was that it wasn't really the Maroons that moved. It was Lucas was uh, able to acquire the struggling Cleveland team in the National League and move it. Uh, so he didn't have a, a, a very good team. Um, and then Lucas ended up uh, squandering his fortune on a number of things <laughs> over the years. And he actually... Uh, uh, died a, a, a uh, poor man, if not a penniless man. Um, so he had all kinds of uh, issues ahead of him. <laughs> uh, lesson learned when you inherit money, friends. Uh, you know. Yeah. The, uh, well, so it's, you know, I, I know that, that uh, time is, you know, or history is in hindsight, right? And you, you, 2020, except. Yeah. But um, I don't know. It's the cynic almost in me. Well, I was going to say that uh, in some respects, maybe, uh, you tell me, you're the expert. Um you know that the the Wilmington Quick Steps story almost is uh, feels almost like a, a a contributing element to really a bigger story about Henry Lucas's desire to be in the National League as an owner. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there were a lot of victims, right? Yeah, I mean that's true. I, I I think I think the Quick Steps are really sort of victims of their own uh, uh, desire for success in a similar way 
that you know Lucas was was uh, uh, sort of done in for for his own success. You know, if Lucas's league was to be successful, his team could not have been that successful. He just he overdid it, right? The Quick Steps built a team that was way better than any uh, Eastern League team that year. Uh, they almost they almost overshot the goalpost. You know what I mean? And and uh, um, you know I think they 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 almost you know tried so hard to succeed that they failed. <laughs> you know both both Lucas and Wilmington really uh, because the Wilmington owner again we uh, you know he 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 also you know uh, may have suffered some certain delusions of grandeur. You know. Um, and, and, you know, the, the thing I say in the book, really, is that the thing that, that Lucas and John West really share in common more than anything else is they were both absolute fools for baseball. They loved it. You know, the game was exploding. They very much wanted to be a part of it. They very much wanted to be successful at it. And, again, they succeeded so outrageously they failed. Um, last question: Any uh, any remnants or of the history of this team aside from obviously your book? Is there anything in, in yeah. Wilmington or the, the Blue Rocks? Uh, uh, any you know, is there any sort of deference or historical plaques or any memories or or, or recountings of the story or or, or is it? There just, should be, don't you think? <laughs> well, it sounds interesting. It, I, I, it sounds like a lot, a lot of these stories, frankly, that we get into, especially some of the older ones, almost feel yeah. like they're at the very least fodder for a serialization, if you will, with a little bit of dramatic license. I mean, you, I could, I can hear the, the pianos and the saloons, right. You know, playing in the background and you can kind of, you know, create a little story around some of these guys with these great names like Oyster Burns and the only Nolan. I mean, just the names themselves yeah. evoke interesting. I talk, I, I'm totally with you. I, I, I if any filmmakers listening out there, please buy the rights to this story. You could, you could cast a bunch of, you know, good looking young men and, uh, uh, you know, make a box office killing. No, but in Wilmington, I, you know, it's hard to say every, every, you know, 10 or 12 years, somebody, somebody, you know, brings this up. I, I, this book itself was based on my coming across this story 15 years before and wrote a magazine article that it was published in Wilmington. And, you know, that's based on, you know, articles that you see in the news journal archives every, every 10 or 12 years or 15 years. But yeah, I mean, it is, it is, uh, in my estimation, a, an underreported phenomenon that that a that a city as small as Wilmington, you know, at one time had a major league team. I mean, I, I, uh, I mean that bit itself was so astonishing that that's what made me want to do this. You know, this story, even before I knew how sort of extraordinary it was, um, you know, just that is is mind blowing. You know, and. Uh, so no, I don't know if there's if there's anything that commemorates that team. Uh, you know, the hotel where the players stayed still stands. It's now known as the Queen Theater. Um, you know the uh, you know the Blue Rock Stadium stands on the grounds where the Harlan and Hollingsworth Corporation made the rail cars and the boats, and really where all the fans for the old you know, uh, uh, team worked, but, um, you know, it, it, the blue rocks to my knowledge, haven't done anything on this. I mean, it, it seems to me to be a natural, you know, throwback day, right. I've, I've 
got some information about sort of what their uniforms looked like, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, it would be, it would be awesome. And, um, but yeah, uh, does Wilmington recognize it? Eh, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's uh, get some promo stuff for, uh, for you. Uh, g- give me uh, here's your chance to just uh, tout the book. Give us the name, where it's available, and all that kind of good stuff. And uh, maybe what other sure things thing. you might be also thinking about or working on. Uh, yeah. Well, the book is called uh, Once Upon a Team. It was published by uh, Sports Publishing LLC. Uh, it's available in in uh, bookstores, uh, particularly around Wilmington, uh, or online any of your online uh, stores. Uh, you can order a copy from me directly if you want to reach me. I, I'm at uh, springer66.net. I've got a website where I've been writing a little bit about the stories I'm telling in the book. Uh, I, I tweet mostly about the Met, uh, something about my book at uh, at springer66. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm known a little bit for, for having done uh, Mets by the Numbers, the book, uh, which is the, the, you know, the online uh, repository of, of Mets uniform number history, and that's available at mbtn.net. And MB and uh, again mbn as a Nancy T dot net. It's um if you call yourself a New York it, Mets fan, and I grew up basically as a Mets fan after having become a turncoat from a Yankee fan in 1986, because obviously Mets were an exciting <laughs> uh, franchise at the time, and I never kind of really looked back. Um, uh, it is uh, a quintessential uh, must-read if you're a Mets fan. So it's that's called Mets by the Numbers. Uh, and um, so, any other things in your uh, in your wheelhouse that you're contemplating uh, in the sport of baseball or otherwise? I am, but I don't know quite what they're going to be yet. Um, uh, what I'm hoping to do here with uh, you know this book, which you know obviously has a, a kind of a limited kind of built-in audience, is just kind of build some momentum toward toward the ability to kind of plow into another project. So, I I, I love baseball. I like telling stories. Uh, I, I definitely uh, I had a good time with this. You know, I, I might want to look into it a little bit more contemporary uh, story next time. But but I hope to have something uh, at at some point. Let's put it that way. Well, it's a very interesting story, and I especially uh, enjoyed your uh, the preface uh, of the book when you were talking about uh, uh, the big Macmillan baseball encyclopedia that your dad brought home one one day. Um, and yeah. for those old enough to know, I mean, this was a you know this obviously before a lot of the online and internet stuff. I mean, that we're talking. I mean, think of the largest dictionary you could right that might sit in a library and maybe double or triple the size of it. Um, yeah. When you're a kid, that you see this this baseball encyclopedia, it's just it's a it's a gargantuan. Uh, uh, I don't even think they publish it anymore. But uh, I can. I can yeah, no, it's completely mind boggling, though, right? Yeah. And you just you just get this idea that you know you've got a big you know collection of of tops baseball cards. You think you know what's you know what what there is to know about baseball, and boy, are you wrong, right? I mean, it's just so much. Uh, there's so much out there. You know, I guess one of the cool things about, about this book is maybe it demonstrates to people that, that really there are stories out there in the most obscure, um, you know, arcane baseball episodes. You know, I mean, I certainly found a good story here. Um, and, and you know, I kind of like it for, for a lot of reasons. But, um, you know, uh, look, it, 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 you know, if this if a minor league baseball team from the 19th century can be written about, you know, you figure like, like there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that can be written about. All 
right, there you go. Uh, Wilmington, Delaware, Blue Rocks fans of the Carolina League. There's your uh, entry into your entree into uh, the uh, past uh, history of Wilmington professional baseball uh, and perhaps a little bit of a, uh, a door opener, shall we say, uh, into uh, a little bit of that uh, history that preceded the, the uh, Blue Rocks uh, arriving on the scene and uh, successfully so in the minor leagues. Uh, perhaps a little throwback, a little uh, a little remembrance, a little uh, memory uh, could be served by going back into the uh, Wilmington Quick Step story and perhaps uh, some some goodness to be had there as uh, as we enjoyed that journey back with uh, uh, with John Springer and uh, the book uh, as uh, we hinted at is uh, called Once Upon a Team: The Epic Rise and Historic Fall of Baseball's Wilmington Quick Steps. Uh, it is published by Sports Publishing LLC. Uh, it came out just about two months ago, and uh, it's a very fun read. And uh, the uh, just the, uh, uh, the, the, the you can hear, as I sort of hinted at uh, during our conversation, you can hear sort of the uh, uh, the pianos and the uh, the clinking of glasses and the uh, the murmur in the uh, the saloons, if you will, uh, of that era and of that time. And uh, it, the uh, writing is uh, is uh, is uh, is poignant. It's great. It's fun. And uh, look, I think some some great stories. Uh, that we just scratched the surface of. And look, it's really indicative of a whole bunch of uh, uh, just amazing uh, twists and turns of the sport of baseball in the early days. Uh, a lot of which has been sort of overlooked or sort of glossed over, uh, but uh, some real characters and some real seeds of, of some of the stuff that baseball's gone through over the years, including things like uh, management, uh, restricting uh, players from uh from uh, moving around to different teams and, and all kinds of other sort of bigger issues that obviously have taken on much larger um, dimensions as, as the years have gone on. But uh, f- always fun, always interesting. And yes, we can now check the box. Wilmington, Delaware and the Wilmington Quick Steps of the old one-year-only Union Association of 1884. Uh, and uh, that's what we do here. We uh, knock another one down and, and more to come uh, on this uh, little show. We appreciate your listening. Uh, by all means, uh, give us a, a rating or review, will you? Go to Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get the show. Uh, rate it, review it, uh, and of course, tell your friends. Uh, that's how we get found. That's how we get recommended. Uh, it helps the algorithm out, and uh, we obviously want to get more people out there to hear and enjoy the show, hopefully like you do uh, as well. We also want to remind you that we are found uh, early and often on Twitter at Good Seats Still. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, we're on Instagram. Well, we say that on Instagram. We're on Facebook. Yeah, that's it. The uh, sister company. There you go of Instagram. Uh, we have a page devoted to us there. You'll find us there as well. Our email address is hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And obviously that website is where you can go if you forgot all that stuff. Goodseatsstillavailable.com. You'll find all of our old episodes. Uh, you'll find uh, links to the books and uh, all kinds of fun imagery and stuff. Uh, you can sign up for our newsletter, all that good stuff. Uh, so visit there early and often bookmark it and uh, please, by all means, uh, send us a note and let us know what you think. And uh, lastly, but not leastly, we want to thank our friends at Podfly Productions, podfly.net. It's the place to go to help you get up and running in the world of podcasting like they've helped us do for the last year and a half. And of course, we want to tip our baseball cap to our good friend, Jerry Payne, who uh, puts our pieces together every week. Thanks, Jerry. And uh, to Podfly Productions, again, podfly.net. Okay, I'm done. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, We'll see you or hear you or speak to you. That's it. Next week, 
And uh, we appreciate your listening. Good night, everybody. Or good good morning, good afternoon, whatever it is. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.